Good morning. It's great to see everyone here again today. And I hope that you had a, a great feasting time. I did my fair share, plus. And so um, my scale's broken until next Friday. I'm not going to test it and, and see what happened. Um, <clears throat> a couple of announcements. First of all, um, Jeff, thank you for leading us in music again. And the music team, it's a delight to me to, to know that um, the music team members love the Lord Jesus and are examples of how to follow him. They lead us spiritually. Amen. Um, you got to back off on how fun it is to sing, though, because I can't, my voice can't make it through a song service and a sermon. So I'll just try to hold myself back, but you don't, right? You guys get to sing full out. That's a delight. Also, I wanted to uh, express thanksgiving for Pastor Steve. Um, our transition process is working well, and um, Lord willing, by May, I'll, I'll, you will elect me as an assistant associate pastor, and we'll elect him as the senior pastor. And so when that transition happens in May, we're looking forward to that. But I've, um, so many times already as we kind of do this transition piece by piece, I'm just so encouraged by the parts that he's doing. I said, man, we should have been doing that all along. But I haven't been able to, and so he is. And so what a delight it is to have him pick up some of those pieces and provide good leadership for us. So thank you for that. Um, also, the last announcement is tonight we're starting a new Bible study on the book of Philippians. We've done that a few years ago, but we're going to go slower this time, I think. And so if you want to get into the Word and understand it better, Philippians is a great book to do so. And so please join us on Sunday nights, 6 o'clock. We sit in the first few rows and and we talk and discuss and try to understand exactly what the text is saying as best as possible and then apply it to our lives. So I encourage you, um, you can never have too much Bible in your life. And so this is a really intense, strong dose. And, uh, and so I encourage you to come for that. Also, our uh, group is going to be traveling to the Pines. That's the, the children's home in South Africa. Last week, if you were here, you got to hear Phil and Alana talk about that. Um, they're the directors there. One of, what a ministry it is to these children whose parents were lost to the AIDS epidemic and then they're abandoned and orphaned. And so, um, Don, if you want to come forward, Don is one of the ones who's going on the trip. And so she's going to explain a little bit about what she's thinking and how to pray for them as a team. So thank you, Don. Uh, sounds like Jesus made a mistake again, huh? not. Well, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to 1 John with me as we continue our series there. If you recall, we've been spending a lot of time sort of uh, apologetically defending the teaching of the scripture against these false teachers that left or split off from the group. And so we completed that last time. And so what I wanted to do now as we pick up a few things is is while we're watching John defend and, and assure these believers, he gives us some other good theology that we should learn from. And so one of the things we're going to learn about is that God is love. And so today the topic, the title is The Nature of God, but specifically that God is love. It's stated so clearly in 1 John and, and more clearly than elsewhere in the Bible and so that's where we're going to focus today. In particular, we'll, we'll be starting at 1 John chapter 4. 
And so I'll have it on the screen if you'd like, but you can read along in your copy of the Bible. Dear friends, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And then skipping down a few verses, we'll come back to the ones we're skipping, but for right now. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If we say we love God yet hate our brother or sister, we are liars. For if we do not love a fellow believer whom we have seen, we cannot love God whom we have not seen. And he has given us this command. Those who love God must love one another. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us to understand the nature of your love and how deep and wide and long, unfathomable it is. May we understand this love, abide in it, rest in it, and stay with you and live that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have a relatively simple outline today. Um, if you want to send me questions during the message, you can text me at that number and I'll try to answer them at the end. And so the first point is that God is love. The Bible says that God is love. And before we get too far in there, I hope you realize as you were reading along with me that what the word love means here is probably a little different than the way it's used in our world. Our world would never say things that, um, that God's love says. And so there's a few things I wanted to just kind of conditionally or, or explain about God's love it's not the same thing as this uh, idea in the world that everything is affirmed. I think there's a notion in our world that love is affirming everything, right? I want to be a muskrat. And so if you really love me, you'll affirm my decision to be a muskrat. And you'll, you'll do whatever, you understand why I'm saying it. Just because I want to be something doesn't necessarily mean it's right for me to be that way. And for me to want to do something or be something doesn't necessarily mean that it's loving on your part to let me do that, right? If my little boy came to me and said, Dad, I want to be a muskrat, 
I would say to him, son, that's not good for you. You, you would get all muddy and you would freeze to death in the water and you wouldn't, right? So I would, I would help him understand that that's not the way it's supposed to be. So that's just an example of a silly thing. My point is, is that love sometimes says no. So anyway, um, the first point I wanted to make is that God's love is contra-conditional. We could sometimes say that God's love is unconditional. We have a joke around our house that one of our kids, uh, one of her, uh, one of her, I've already tipped that off, so we've eliminated three, four, right? So one of her, uh, one of her characteristics is she loves the rest of us, un- she, loves, excuse me, she loves the rest of us conditionally. <laughs> she says, I have conditional love for you. And so if you have enough noms or enough uh, party, then she loves you. Otherwise, she doesn't. She's pretty honest about that, right? Conditional love is I only love you if you meet my conditions. And Tammy pretty much has unconditional love for me. I could demonstrate a number of conditions that would prove that she must love me. But as a human being, her love is, to say it's unconditional, that's her desire. But if I really, really went wacky, it would really be hard for her to be unconditional. You understand? It would be really hard for a human being to do that. If I lost it entirely and became evil toward her and evil toward our children, her, her love for me would, would put up boundaries. It would be necessary to, to protect me and the family if I went wild, right? She would need to do... So unconditional love is a wonderful thing. God loves us, in a sense, unconditionally. But actually, his love is better than that. It's contra-conditional. He loves us in spite of our condition. Right? Look at this verse from Romans. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't that we were neutral and God loved us no matter what happened. We were actually enemies. We were fallen away and dead. And God loved us. He loved us against the conditions of love. He had every right not to love us. And he loves us contra-conditionally. Isn't that glorious? That's what God did. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. Right? That's the whole point. God loves us and wakes up our dead soul and gives us understanding so that we can love him back. So, again, God's love is contra-conditional. But the other thing I wanted to say is that God's love is expressed in his law. God is not lawless. God has a do not and thou shalt not component to his love. And for me to be um, trapped in my selfish and prideful evil desires is not good for me. And God's love says no to that which is not good for me. And he teaches me how to obey his law and experience his love. So his love is not conditional, but his love is couched in law, in thou shalt nots and thou shalts and, and things to do and not do, because that's what love does, right? Just like a parent, you know, if, if I didn't love my child, I wouldn't care whether they ran in the street. But because I do love them, I say, no, you can't run in the street. You, you need to learn how to cross the street before you can do that. Love doesn't let you do everything. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. So what is love then? Well, I want to just go and get some definitions from the text. So three things that I see here, at least two for sure, and one, uh, the third one, maybe more or less 
uh, implied, but the first one is, well, let's read the text. This is how we know what love is. So let's see what First John says, what love is. What is love? Well, this is how we know. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. If any one of you has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. So, from what I'm picking up from that, first thing I'd say is love is an action, right? Love takes actions. God so loved the world that he gave. Right? He does something. It's an act of love. It doesn't matter how much you pine away and say, oh, she's so beautiful, she's so sweet, I love her so much. If you don't take action to call up the phone number, you're never going to have a relationship. Right? There's action. Love expresses itself in action. It's not passive. It moves. It changes. It does things. And that's encouraging because sometimes if you don't feel like you're in love, or feel like you love the person that is the person you're supposed to love, that's okay. You're not supposed to go on feelings. You're supposed to go on obedience, and you, you do actions. I have to confess that um, probably about six months ago, I did not like my sister Diane very much. She was a real irritant. Um, her, her mental illnesses had made her um, unkind. You could hardly ever visit with her without getting um, reminded of all your sins of your youth and all these offenses that I had done and um, a lot of vicious language because she wasn't herself and she was suffering. And so it was really, really hard. And her condition declined to the point where it was necessary for me to become her legal guardian, the court's um, I, I drew the short straw among my, my siblings, and, um, and so I was the one to pursue guardianship, and the courts evaluated her and the judge, and it's really a formal process. It's kind of, as a side note, I'm kind of encouraged that in the United States you can't just lose your rights that easy. You have to have a pretty thorough investigation. And so I was granted her guardianship, and uh, that meant I was responsible for all of her decisions, medical, financial. She, didn't, she wasn't allowed to make her own decisions anymore. Talk about mad. Not happy news for her. And she was going to fire me as fast as she could. But my heart was not very soft. But the, um, the actions that the next several months required of me being involved and having to get more involved in her medicines. She had pushed us away for a long time, so we didn't know who her doctors were. We didn't know hardly anything. She's a very independent, strong woman. And so she, I'm learning these things, and I'm getting involved, and I'm visiting her more often. And my actions of investment and kindness have changed my heart. That's what love is, isn't it? I, I'm softer to her. I used to hate it when she would hug me. She hugs too much. I'm, I'm, I, got a, I got a small territory, right? I, I hug her easy. So that's what love is. It's an action. 
The other thing it says, let's not love just with words and in tongue. Let's not just talk about, oh, be, go well. Be, right? But if we see our brother in need, we're supposed to love with actions. But the other thing we're supposed to do is we're supposed to love with truth. There is, I, I cannot think of any way that lying or misleading or deceiving a loved one is an action of love. It's the truth. And this is what makes Jesus' love so amazingly clear is, he didn't lie to anybody. Do you know how Jesus loved the Pharisees? He told them the truth about where they were at. He said words like, Woe to you! Unless you figure this out, you are, you are like a tomb that's all clean on the outside and on the inside full of dead men's bones. You have all these externals. You're caught up and yet you don't even know me, the one on whom all the scriptures you study are based. And so he told people the truth. He didn't ever gloss it over. And so it's love is also the truth. It's never a good thing to hedge the truth. Again, I, I don't mean to talk so much about myself, but um, in the experiences of the recent weeks, my, um, my last Sunday night, my sister was especially clear-minded. She was, um, because of strange things that had happened in the schedule, she was unable to schedule a go bus to take her home after her dialysis last Sunday afternoon. So I had the privilege of going and picking her up after her dialysis. And so I, I get there, and she's out in the lobby in her wheelchair, and, and I um, came up and, and hugged her, and, and we cried together for a while. She says, I just can't do it anymore, which it was so clear. Her, her thinking was, I, I can't explain to you, it has to be a God thing. We've been praying for it, but there was no evidence of her mania, no evidence of her paranoia, no evidence of anxiety, none of the things that she's been heavily medicated, none of it was there. She was totally herself. That, like maybe I haven't seen in years the clarity with what she had. And she said, I, I just can't do it anymore. I said, she, I got to get a transplant next month. If I can't get a transplant next month, I don't think I can do this. Well, I knew because of letters from the people, the hospital, the part of the hospital that does the transplants, even if she had a donor that was ready and capable and, and willing and compatible, even if all of the pieces were there, the people, the clinic that does the transplants had told us that we will not even look at her for a year because of her heavy hospitalization. She has to have at least a year free of these kind of deep hospitalizations in order to be qualified to consider the, the rigors of the medical treatment of a transplant. It's a really difficult thing to survive a kidney transplant. You've got to be in pretty good shape to get that going. And so here my, my sister is, is saying, um, you've got to do something in a month. And I know, and I haven't been able to tell her for a couple weeks because she's never there in right mind. And I know that she's got at least a year to wait. So here's what does love do? Does love offer false hope? I was thinking the other day, is there anything more horrible than false hope? When you think about it. It might manipulate my behavior for a little while to believe that I'm going to get to the end of the race. It might, it might cause me to live a certain way if I had this hope of heaven, sort of. And, you know, but if I die and it's all a sham... Is there anything that could possibly be worse than that? A false hope. I wonder if that's how the disciples felt when Jesus died. 
Thomas said, man, I'm not getting suckered by that again. It's a false hope. He wasn't who he promised to be. Of course, then Jesus rose from the dead and proved it wasn't a false hope, right? Amen. It's a real hope. But a false hope is, a, is an act of cruelty. And so I think the loving thing was the truth. When in doubt, tell the truth, right? So I said, Diane, the doctor says, we, don't even, we can't even for a year even think about it for a year. And the relief came over her and uh, a peace came on her that I haven't seen. And so, wow. So this is what I'm going to die from. I'm done. I'm, I don't need to take this extraordinary me- measure of, uh, you, you take extraordinary means of medical treatment in order to achieve a goal. And when the goal is not possible, you're not obligated to carry that heavy level of treatment. So she's decided not to. What a, what a glorious, wonderful thing. She said, um, I get to choose to go to heaven. Nobody really needs me anymore. I'm okay. So she was able to go. And so it's going to be a fun thing for her when she gets there. It's not fun right now, but you understand, right? And she says, so some people, they live weak. They could live a couple years. They could live a couple years without dialysis. I'll, I'll be fine. I said, Diane, last time you missed a treatment, we almost lost you in a week. You haven't got a year. You understand. Yeah, I know. Truth is, the love tells the truth, amen? Do you want somebody to tell you the truth? Man, that's the best part of being my, my wife's my best friend. She'll tell me the truth. And that's the best part. So love is action. Love tells the truth. And love seeks the best. Love seeks the best for the loved one. It's not temporary relief. It's not um, momentary satiation of a desire. It's not... You know, if, if you were stranded on a, a, a life raft and you're on the ocean and your little child and you are waiting for rescue and they say, I'm so thirsty, I'm so thirsty, can I have a drink? And you say, okay, here, here's some, and you, you take a big glass of salt water out of the ocean and give it to them. Is that loving? It, it satiates the immediate desire. They're, they're thirsty right now. I want a drink now. I've got to have a drink now. But is it best? No, it's not best because it's salt water and it'll make you thirstier and it'll, it'll do all the, it won't quench the thirst. It'll only make you sicker. You have to, with, you have to wait for the rain. You have to wait for fresh water. And so love is able to say no and sometimes painfully no in order to do what's best for the loved one. Are you not grateful to the many, many ways and the many times that your parents and other authorities in your life have stopped you from getting what you wanted? (laughs) Man, I am so glad to my mom and dad for stopping me from getting what I wanted when I wasn't old enough to understand. By God's grace, I'm so grateful to the Holy Spirit who stops me from getting what I want, now that I am old enough to understand. (laughs) Right? So God loves us with actions. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus tells us the truth. He says, unless you believe in me, you'll be in outer darkness. You need to trust me to save you. You cannot save yourself. And I know what's best for you. I know what will lead to your greatest and greatest thing. As a matter of fact, if you want to find yourself, 
If you want to be completely fulfilled as a person, then Jesus says you need to die to yourself for my sake. Then you'll find your life. It starts with denial. You don't get what you want, you get what I want. And you will find life, and it'll be life to the full. It'll be the greatest thing that ever, ever possible. It's the best possible. And so that's what love is. Action, truth, and the best. So love is action in truth for the best. And then the third point I want us to get from the text is that we're supposed to abide in God's love. To abide in it. And I want to read this now from the ESV, partly because he uses the word abides in this translation. Um, but if you look at your other translation, the NIV, it's just in or remain in or stay in. So it's the word abide. It's all in the same way. But um, here is those that verses we skipped over. Part of them anyway. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So if we love one another as believers, what's happening is God is abiding in us. He's resident. He's with us and his love is perfected in us. So the more we try to love one another, the more that that happens. And by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And so we know that God's love is in us because the Spirit's in us. And this harks back to John 14, 15, 16, the upper room discord where Jesus says, I am the vine, you're the branches, you've got to abide in me, the Spirit's going to come. A lot of teaching being crystallized and down into this thing here. But we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So again, if we objectively believe the gospel and trust that, then God's Spirit is in us and God abides in us and we abide in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. That is Paul's prayer in a number of his epistles. I, I want you to know the love of God. Do you know the love of God. You can know it deeper. And John says, we have come to know and to believe the love of God has for us. Do you believe God loves you? You know, one of our problems is, one of my problems as a person, I can get through suffering because I kind of feel like I deserve suffering. You know what I mean? That's sort of like, I have a harder time getting through blessing because I don't feel like I deserve love from God. Do we deserve love from God? Yes and no. Not in ourselves, but yes, because we're in Jesus. And God has poured out his love into our hearts through his spirit. God truly, intimately loves you and accepts you how you are. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. I need a dose of this all the time. Maybe I need to, I need to sit back and realize that God has declared me righteous in his sight. And I hear the enemy say, yeah, but I know what you did yesterday. And then I need to remember the verse, but he has presented me faultless and without accusation, Satan. You just shut up. Without accusation, because I'm in Christ. I'm without fault. I'm free from accusation, Colossians 1. I am able to experience the love of God and rest in the fact that he loves me as a son. He loves me Enough to send Jesus to die. Jesus loves me enough to experience all of the pains of the cross 
and the death of his body on the tree, the separation from God the Father. He loves me enough to keep promise to keep me forever and ever. I've got a secure and perfect future with him. No matter how deep my suffering, it only points to what Jesus did for me. God loves me. And I can abide and I can rest and I don't need to worry and labor. Amen? Oh, I wish we would all get that and understand it. Forgive ourselves. If we would accept ourselves even half as much, even a tenth as much as God accepts us, we would be so much more free in our hearts. Well, I wanted us to sing a song together, if you don't mind. It's Love Lifted Me by Alan Jackson. So it's an old hymn. If you can kind of remember it, you can help me along with it. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Love lifted me, love lifted me, when nothing else could help, love lifted me. All my heart to Him I give, ever to Him I'll cling. In his blessed presence live, ever his praises sing. Love so mighty and so true merits my soul's best songs. Faithful loving service to, to him belongs. Love lifted me, love lifted me, when nothing else could help. Love lifted me, love lifted me, love lifted me. Nothing else could help. Love lifted me. Amen. So God is love. It's where love comes from. We're in His image. So love is action and truth for the best. We're to abide in God's love. And finally, we're to love one another. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Amen? I'm not sure what else could be said.
What a blessing to be part of a community that practices that already. You do demonstrate that you're Jesus' disciples by the way that we love one another. And so I'm so proud of you and, and grateful in the Lord Jesus for his grace. May we continue to do so. Okay? Well, let's check and see whether or not anybody had a question. Oh, man. Should I name you? <clears throat> so somebody says, Rahab lied. What's up with that? <laughs> Remember when I said... Uh, <clears throat> Love never lies, right? Love always tells the truth. Rahab lied. What's up with that? Well, I have an answer that I always give to this. I don't know if you um, noticed, but when we were reading the response of reading, his love endures forever. He made the great lights, the sun to rule the day, the moon to rule the night. Love endures forever. Yeah, that's easy to go. And then all of a sudden he starts saying things like, you killed the firstborn of Egypt, and his love endures forever. And you killed all these kings, and the Lord love endures. How can you be killing people and loving people? I think that's part of what I'm trying to understand, is that there are enemies of the gospel, there are enemies of God, and God's holiness is not eradicated by our perception of what love is, right? We perceive love as affirming no matter what, or accepting no matter what, and yet God is God, and as the creator, he has the rights and the obligation by his nature to judge evil and to give laws. And so God has the right to bring about disaster and destruction on the wicked. Um, the amazing thing, ultimately, is not that God created hell for his enemies. The amazing thing is that God would provide salvation for anybody else. That's the amazing thing. The right and just thing. If we want justice, if we want fairness, then it's spelled H-E-L-L. That's what fairness gets. But grace provides salvation to some. I don't know why Noah and his family got rescued and the rest did not. I don't know why some people are called to believe and others do not. And according to what I understand in the Bible, anybody who wants to argue with God, the answer is, who are you to argue with God? God gets to choose that, Romans 9. And so God has the right to afflict and bring judgment on the wicked. So... In the Ten Commandments, when it says, Thou shalt not kill, that is a commandment that has an exception clause. And the exception clause is kind of pointed out in the, in the story of Noah. When he says, uh, God gives a covenant, he says, uh, the, nobody's allowed to take anyone's life. But if anyone does take a person's life, if a man kills another person, then from man his blood shall be shed. And so God institutes a judgment if you bring about death, if you murder somebody, then God allows the people, the government, the state to execute that person. And God also established when he sent Abram into the land to conquer the, uh, Abram's descendants, he gave the land to Abram. He waited until their wickedness had reached the full, and God allowed his 
those nations to be destroyed as a judgment for their wickedness. There's several texts that point out real clearly that the, the wickedness of the Canaanites' people had reached a level that God was ready to judge it. And so Rahab was in that city. And so if it's okay in an act of war to kill your enemy, then that must not be a violation of the Ten Commandments, do not kill, right? Because there's an exception clause, either capital punishment or a just war. I'm not saying we have just war, I'm just saying theoretically God's got a just war because he told Israel to do it. And so as an act of war, you are allowed to kill your enemy, understand? As an act of war, you're also allowed to deceive your enemy. Did you know that though in the battle of Ai, I know this is a long answer, it's your fault. I'm not telling you who you are either. Do <clears throat> um, you remember in the battle of uh, Jericho, where Rahab came from, right? Rahab lied and the spies, then they walked around the city and the city fell down. The next city was Ai. And uh, one of the guys, who's the guy? Achan, stole the gold. And so then when they attacked Ai, they failed because there was sin in the camp and there was loss of life and all that stuff. So anyway, they finally get a chance. They've purged the sin from the community. They stoned Achan and his family for their sin. And so now they're going to attack Ai. And God tells them to lie to the enemy in the way that they do it. He says, you all attack the front. Some of you sneak around behind. And then you pretend to fall back. And when they get drawn out of the city, then you go into the city. So it's a deceptive tactic as an act of war. Right? He lied. God lied to Ai. He told Israel to lie to Ai. Why? Because God can do that as an act of war. And so when Rahab lied to the spies, I would, I would put that under the umbrella as an act of war. She decided to switch sides. and She was on the spy side, not the Jericho side. So that's, what's up with that, right? Rahab lied, what's up with that? Did she love? She loved God. And she loved the spies. And as an act of war, she lied. That's my answer, my ethics. Whew. Oh, man, there's so many more messages. Ah, sort of. Okay, here's a question from somebody I don't know. Do you have to forgive someone who lies to you right away? Let's just say, do you have to forgive someone right away? Okay, so this is a question. Do you have to forgive someone who lies to you or do you have to forgive them right away? Um, that's a whole nother sermon. I'm going to let Pastor Steve handle that one. <laughs> let me just say in shortness that when human beings forgive other human beings, it's different than when God forgives human beings, right? And so we have a different kind of obligation. We're supposed to love our enemies. We're supposed to forgive people. But if an injustice is actually done, then that's between God and them. And so they still might have to suffer the consequences. And so if somebody offends you or hurts you or lies to you, you are not obligated to um, forgive the same way that Jesus does, but nor are you uh, free to not forgive. It depends, and time can go by, and I think right away is maybe not always smart. I think it's time to... There's a, there's a releasing forgiveness immediately, but there's a... That's a really complicated subject, so... I think you understand what I'm trying to get at, right? That it's different than what God's doing. And then here's another question. How do, how do we feel that we deserve love? Low self-esteem is an Achilles heel for many. Oh, and then never mind you answered that. You can't love others without loving yourself first. So 
That's a good question. I hope that the answer did come through, right? We need to accept ourselves the way Jesus does. Low self-esteem is our big, in many ways, is our big barrier. So many things we do to get other people's approval. We fear men. I want you to think I'm cool. I want you to think I'm funny. I want you to accept me so bad. It, it, it drives so many of our actions. Have you ever watched? Just sit back and watch toddlers. They want to be approved and, and honored so bad. They've gotta, they want the center so bad. When they get it, they don't want it. They want it so bad. That's, all what, that's what we're all like. And Jesus shines his face on us and forgives us our sins and accepts us in him and we are without fault and free from accusation. Colossians 1. When I memorized that verse back in college, I, I had to take a double take and I said, Really? Really? I stand before God without any fault? Really? Without any accuser? Really? And it's true. Meditate on it. It's true. Because I'm in Jesus. And he lived a perfect life. And he washed away all my sin. And his spirit's changing me. And someday, I'll be perfectly like him. Wow. So, yep, Jesus loves us that much. And you can believe it. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, Thank you so much. You are a good father to us. You've taught us many things and we, we chase after this world's approval and this world's love so many ways. And yet, yours is the only one that satisfies. May we run to your love. Help us to understand it when it, when it, it steps on our toes and crosses our sensitivities. Forgive us. Help us to yield ourselves to your perspective. You are a good father. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us as we sing our closing song together. If you think that you've got it figured out and that you're good enough to please God and that you'll be okay, you don't really need Jesus, you're, you're doing fine, you're better than most people, I need to tell you, I love you, that is a false hope. The truth is only Jesus can save you. You cannot save yourself. You can't be perfect enough, but he has been. And if you believe in him, his righteousness applies to your account and you can be saved. And that's not a false hope. That's the living hope. And we have a secure and living hope in the Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. Well, thank you so much for coming. Please enjoy your cookies and coffee time. I let you get out almost on time. You're dismissed.